Cleves, Chapter 2 It is true, Alice, that I never believed I would see Anne of Cleves, except as a bystander of a stately procession with the rest of the court. It was Will who met her first. As I had feared would happen, Thomas Cromwell had contacted him, him again, asking him to go with the party to meet Anne of Cleves at Calais. The last piece of France we held, it would be her first step into the kingdom of King Henry. From Calais to Dover to Canterbury and at last London, King Henry wanted her to have the most splendid of welcomes. Cromwell asked Will to go with the party as his knowledge of German and detailed acquaintance with the marriage settlement would be useful. I wasn't happy. It meant Will would miss our household Christmas with the decoration of the house, visits to church and singing carols together. But he couldn't help it. When Thomas Cromwell issues an order, you have to obey. He wrote to me from Calais, although I only got his letter after he was back on English soil. My dearest wife, love and mother of my children, it is late here and my candle has but 20 minutes of flame left, I estimate. My love, I miss you so much. Do you miss me? I send you my felicitations and greetings from Calais. You would not believe how much it has changed since we were in France at the Field of Cloth of Gold. Knowing that this would be Lady Anne's first sight of his realm, the King has ordered repaving of the streets, preparing rails for the tilt yard and the great lantern gate. His house called the Exchequer, is nothing like it was when the king stayed there with the first Anne. He would not want there to be anything of her left now. Walls repaired, windows reglazed, and fresh tapestries. His coat of arms is everywhere in bright new colours. I tell you, Cat, he is sparing not a penny to make the Lady Anne of Cleves welcome. The Earl of Southampton is leading us, but Gregory Cromwell is here too. Thomas Seymour and Francis Bryan. Lord Lyle, the governor of Calais, is hosting us all and he seems very flustered by all the upheaval. I saw the lady when she arrived last night. She came in at the lantern gate, but she was quite startled by the cannons that boomed out as she arrived. She's a tall lady, quite sturdy, fair of face, and when she smiles, she's very pretty. We were all dressed in blue velvet and crimson satin. I will keep mine and wear it for you, my love, when I return. I long for you and for Alice and Roger. And we are planning to cross the channel this Sunday. So I shall be back before Christmas, I promise. Today, the Lady Anne is inspecting the King's fleet all drawn up to bring her to England. Like all of us, 
They have been decked out in such finery, I scarce recognise them. I wish I could board them and be with you by tomorrow. But we must be patient, my love. Once the king has met with his bride, then I will be able to slip away and come to you, who are dearer to me than any queen. Tell Alice I shall expect her to tell me the letters she knows when I return, and give Roger a kiss from his loving father. I send you all my blessings and wish you well. Yours, Will Cook, Esquire. As it was, I was busy preparing for a Christmas where he would not be at home. I made spiced meat pies and bought good red wine, oranges, cloves and cinnamon. Will had already chosen wooden toys for all three children. A spinning top for Roger to watch, a cup and ball for Walter and a painted horse for you, Alice, with a real horsehair mane and tail. Tom made almond sweetmeats for everyone and once Christmas Eve had arrived, Jane decorated the house with greenery. We would all go to church in the morning, as was the law, and then we would come home to eat and sing, even though the head of the household wasn't there to join us. I called Will the head of the household because that was what he was. He brought all of the money into the house that fed us, clothed us and kept us warm. He had said when we married that I could also work as a musician and I know that he meant it. But with you, Alice, and then Roger, my time was full and I had not thought to resume my post as a musician. And, of course, I had been dismissed by the Lady Mary after Queen Jane died. For now, I was happy, if a little bored, being a good wife. I taught you to sing that year, Alice. I remember. I would play in Dulce Jubilo on the lute, and you would join in. You always had a sweet voice. Walter would play a lively beat on an upturned cooking pan, and Roger would gurgle along, dribbling down his linen bib. We had a happy Christmas Eve, finished off with sweet mulled wine and mince pies. I missed Will very much, but there was a part of me that was relieved. I was used to managing on my own. I had always been independent, but in the last couple of years, I hadn't had a chance to prove it. It was quite good to direct a household once more, without reference to anyone else. It snowed on that night of Christmas Eve. I was playing idly on the lute, enjoying its mellow sound. Tom took you, Alice, and Walter out to make snowballs, while Roger slept cosily in his crib beside me. Jane sat opposite me, sewing a shirt for Will. I had never been much of a semstress, Unlike my dear mother, Queen Catherine, I had never objected to another woman making shirts for my husband. Indeed, I relished the peace of the snowy afternoon and the golden sounds of songs from the past. It did not last long. The snow had muffled all footsteps, but I could not miss the sharp rat-a-tat-tat on our door. It had an air of impatience and Jane put down her sewing and hurried to answer it. I heard an aristocratic woman's voice telling Jane she wanted to see the mistress of the house. I had no idea who it could be, 
my contacts with the aristocracy were all but gone and none of our neighbours spoke in that authoritative way. A moment later, the voice's owner appeared in the doorway. She was tall and fair, enveloped in a cloak of sables. She was flanked by another woman, who I took to be a lady-in-waiting. Jane hovered in the background. I put my lute down, stood up and curtsied to the newcomer. You're most welcome, my lady, whoever you are, I said. Jane piped up. I'm sorry, mistress, I did not catch this lady's name. She was being tactful. The lady had not, in my hearing, given a name. She spoke again. Cat, isn't it? You may not remember me. It was so long ago. I am Catherine Willoughby, the daughter of Maria de Salinas. I gasped. This fine lady was not only the daughter of my benefactor, Maria de Salinas, but, as Duchess of Suffolk, one of the greatest in the land. I curtsy again, this time much more deeply. You're most welcome, your ladyship, I gabbled. Please, take a chair. Jane, fetch some wine for our visitors. Catherine Willoughby settled herself down, but waved her gloved hand. Please do not trouble yourself with wine. I cannot stay long. I need to speak with you, Cat. She turned and looked at Jane, who scuttled out of the parlour, muttering something about peeling some onions. Cat, now I see you, I do remember, she said, standing up and coming close to me. I could smell her scent. It was oranges and sandalwood, just like her mother's. You played the lute rather well, if I remember rightly. Yes, I did, your ladyship. I was fortunate to play at court. Even more fortunate to know your mother and the old queen. I loved them both dearly. Catherine Willoughby gave me a strange look, as if she was considering something. But she shook herself and then continued. I need you, Cat. I need you to come back to court. I stood there, my mouth open with shock. But your ladyship, why? She laughed and put her arm around my shoulder. My mother spoke often of you, Cat, and of your skill as a lutenist. I need you to come with me for a few days and play for a very important lady. I was incredulous. Why me? There are plenty of musicians. And how did you find me? I found you by looking through my mother's accounts. She gave you this house, did she not? As it happens, it is but a stone's throw from her London house, where I am staying at present. I, stand, I stood up straight and made a joke. So we're neighbours, my lady. I'm surprised I haven't seen you before. She looked sharply at me and then smiled. My mother told me you had spirit she said. You will be well fitted to this task. But seriously, my lady, there are many musicians who are more experienced than I, I said. But they are all men, Cat, and none of them have experience of serving a queen in her privy chamber. The enormity of what she was asking suddenly came home. 
my head started to spin and I clutched at the back of a chair. Catherine Willoughby motioned to me to sit down and then sat opposite me. I have to go down to Dover to meet with the Lady Anne when she arrives. She is a young woman, very shy. She is not used to the company of men except when heavily chaperoned. I need to have women about her who will entertain her, help her feel at home. You would be ideal. I had not anticipated this. I had thought my days at court were long gone. But I had to admit, I felt a wave of excitement as she spoke. I pushed the thought down and said firmly, I'm sorry, your ladyship, but I cannot go. I have my house to run and my husband is not yet back from Calais. Catherine sighed. So he is in Calais with the Earl of Southampton. They have no chance of crossing with the weather so bad. But the word is that it will be calm before two nights have passed. So you must leave with me and my party at first light. If we ride hard, then we can make it to Dover before they do. But I cannot leave my babies, your ladyship, I objected, albeit a little weakly. I did not want to leave you, Alice, or little Roger. You were my life, and I wasn't going to give you up to dance attendance on another queen. But Catherine Willoughby was not to be brooked. Nonsense! You have your woman to look after them. Please, Cat, it will only be for a couple of weeks, just until she is settled. I looked down at the ground. It was tempting, but the last thing I wanted was to leave my family now, with Christmas almost upon us. Cat, I am asking you for my mother's sake, Catherine said softly. She did you many a favour, I know that. Now is the time to repay her. I stiffened at that. What did Catherine mean? Yes, her mother, Maria de Salinas, had acted as my patron, had protected and looked after me. But did Catherine mean more? Was she implying that she knew the secret of my birth, the stillborn daughter of Henry VIII and Queen Catherine of Aragon, who was miraculously re revived after I was cast out with the dirty linen? What do you mean by that, my lady? I asked her directly. She looked long at me, sighed, and then said, You're wondering what I know, Cat. I may know everything or nothing. Who can believe the ravings of a dying woman? So her mother had told her on her deathbed, but she wasn't sure it was true. Was she planning to hold this over me, to make me do as she wished? Spasms of fear ran through my heart, feelings that I had not had for over two years. Seeing my face, she laughed and embraced me. She pulled back and looked me full in the face. Cat, what is done is done, and I will never speak about it to anyone else, not even to my husband. I will not force you to come with me, but I am asking you, for the sake of my mother and the love she showed you, to do me this favour. Think of this young princess arriving in a strange land without surroundings and faces to comfort her. 
My mother told me what it was like for Queen Catherine of Aragon when she came over. It was hard, very hard. Please find it in your heart to take pity on another girl who is a possession to be bartered. She was trying her best to win me over. My lady, I cannot leave my children for a life at court. I vowed I would never do that. Catherine Willoughby looked thoughtful for a moment, then clapped her hands. It is only for two weeks, Cat, and then I promise you, you will be able to come home. Just think, you will see your husband again at Dover. Your children will prosper with your nursemaid. They will hardly notice your absence. I doubted this. Catherine Willoughby would see her children only occasionally, as great ladies did. I had lived with both of you for two years, sharing everything with you. But, but, two weeks was not a long time, and it would be so exciting to play for a new queen. No one outside the family had heard my new compositions. Imagine playing for a room full of courtiers again. I took my decision. Very well, I will come, but only for two weeks. Good, good. My dearest cat, thank you. I will make it worth your while, I promise. We will need to leave tomorrow morning. I will bring you a horse. You are not going in a coach, my lady? I asked. No, the roads are too bad to travel quickly that way. We have to ride. Can you be ready by daybreak? Your ladyship, it is Christmas Day, I protested. But she flung her arms around me again. No, your ladyship, when we are alone, cat, please. But we must make haste. My husband, the Duke of Suffolk, is waiting for me at Dover. He wants us to come in haste, as the weather looks as if it is improving, and our new queen will be with us before the new year. I regret we must leave early, cat. Just then the door opened and Tom walked in, his shoulders, cap and beard frosted with snow. Walter and you were so excited, Alice, to see a fine lady in furs who presented you both with sweetmeats and a silver crown each. Tom was shy and soon excused himself to the kitchen, but Jane came forward blushing and dropped a deep curtsy to Lady Catherine. It was as if a Christmas angel had descended on our little house. Jane prevailed on Lady Catherine to take some wine after all, and we made a happy little party with Tom, the lady-in-waiting, and Jane joining us. I took a deep breath and asked Tom if he could manage without me for two weeks. I have to go to Dover to join the party to welcome the new queen. The children made oohs, of surprise at this news. Lady Catherine, observing this, said to them, And when your mother returns, you can go with her to see the Queen. How about that? Dear Alice, you nearly popped with excitement. Will she have fine clothes and jewels? Lady Catherine smiled and confirmed this. She will have finer clothes than you have ever seen, Alice. Jewels that are as big as pigeon's eggs. I looked over to Tom. Can you manage without me, Tom, for two weeks? 
Jane can look after the children and you can share the cooking. Will and I will be back very soon. Of course I can, he smiled. Lady Catherine swiftly added him and Jane to the invitation to see the new Queen, leaving them both looking thrilled. She stayed with us until the children went to bed. Before they left the room, she kissed them all on the head and promised them more treats before New Year. That night, I gave the children their presents and allowed them to eat all the sweetmeats they wanted. I wanted to have some kind of Christmas with them and I would be leaving too early in the morning to wake them. Tom saw me looking anxiously at them. Don't worry, cat, he reassured me. I'll take care of them. I'll tell them stories and take them out in the snow. Jane will feed them well and make sure they say their prayers. The time will fly. I gave him a hug. My father-in-law, who had brought me up as his own, was the kindest man imaginable. I knew the children were in safe hands with him and Jane, but it didn't stop the tears coming into my eyes after I'd bid them good night. When I had served King Henry's earlier queen, queens, I had not been a mother, and I realised now what a difference that made to me. I could not do anything now without taking into account my children's welfare. I steeled my heart when I rose before dawn the next morning. I did not go in to see the children for last one last goodbye. I might wake them, and that would make my departure so much harder. I had packed my bags already. I didn't have much. Some fresh linen, Queen Catherine's Book of Hours, her comb and my one fine gown. It was the sea green silk that Will had given to me when we made up our differences. Wearing it, I felt as grand as any aristocrat. I heard a loud knocking on the door and rushed to open it quickly. It was very dark outside, but the light from my house meant that I could dimly see the people outside. Shh, you'll wake the children, I cried out rather loudly. Lady Catherine Willoughby put her head to one side and smiled an apology. She was seated on a fine white horse with four people on horseback alongside her. I made out her lady-in-waiting, two manservants and what looked like a groom leading another horse. At the back there was a mule for the baggage. The groom helped me into the saddle then flung my bags over the back of the mule. Catherine Willoughby looked across at me. Well met, cat, she said. Are you fit? We must ride hard today. I nodded. I'm fit, my lady, and ready to ride. The horse's hooves crunched on the fresh snow as we picked our way through the dark streets. No one was up and about yet, but a few candles had been lit in some of the top stories of the houses. Families waking up ready to enjoy Christmas. I felt a pang of regret, but that was countered by my growing sense of excitement. I was on my way to see a great historical occasion, unlike any since the field of cloth of gold. And when I was home, Alice, I would tell you stories about the pretty German queen and the wonderful clothes she wore. We rode for many hours that day, stopping in Rochester to change horses. 
We had to reach Canterbury, where we would stay for the night. From there it was only a short ride to Dover, where the new Queen would first set foot in England. It was a long, long ride, and I wondered if Catherine Willoughby would find it too tiring. But she was like her mother, made of strong stuff. I remember that time I rode with Maria de Salinas to see Catherine of Aragon on her deathbed. We did not stop except for necessary refreshment. We rode through storms, mud and rain, and Maria was quite undaunted. Like her mother, Catherine Willoughby would not allow the elements to distract her from her planned journey. At last, well past nightfall, we arrived in Canterbury and were lodged in one of the houses belonging to the Archbishop of Canterbury. I was relieved that at the end of a long cold day, I was given a chamber with clean linen, several candles and a glowing fire. On the table there was some manchet bread, a little ham and a flagon of white wine. I ate and drank heartily and got into bed just before the cathedral clock told midnight. The next morning the house was humming with conversations when I woke up. I could hear men's voices and the whinnying of horses waiting outside. I washed my face and hands in the ewer left out for me, put on clean linen and my serviceable gown, and then went downstairs. As I entered the hall, I saw a group of gentlemen warming themselves beside the enormous blazing fire. I could make out the tall figure of the Duke of Suffolk, Lady Catherine's husband. By rights, I should call her the Duchess of Suffolk, but she had showed herself easy with me and indicated I did not need to be formal. Her husband was much older than her. This is a strange thing about aristocratic folk. Marriage isn't about love or even about building a life together. It's all about alliances and bringing wealth into the nobleman's estates. Catherine had been 14 when she married the Duke of Suffolk, to his 49. He had been married to King Henry's sister, Princess Mary, but when she died, he had turned to Catherine, who was his ward. I was glad I was in an ordinary station, where love and a happy family are the most important. But I knew from the court gossip that the Duke and Duchess were happily married. He had gained another fortune, and a beautiful young girl in his bed. She had become one of the most important women at court, with a husband who adored her. It was a fair bargain. I saw her sweep into the room and go over to her husband, who bowed and kissed her hand. All the men around him bowed deeply to her, taking off their caps. Welcome, my lady. I could not be more pleased to see you he said, smiling broadly at her. See, I said I would get back here on time. She was pleased with herself. I have brought a lady musician to cheer the Lady Anne, as I promised. Here, cat, come here. She beckoned to me, and I joined the group, curtsying to all of them. This is Cat Cook. She has worked as a musician for the late Queen Jane, said Catherine who tactfully did not mention the previous two queens I had served. The Duke of Suffolk looked me up and down. Yes, I thought I recognised you. 
must have been in the Queen's chambers. You have a very familiar look about you. I wasn't sure whether he did remember me or whether it was simply my resemblance to my father, the King, which nagged at his brain. But he allowed it to pass. He had given in to his wife's whim and everything had worked out. So he was pleased. Come, ladies, we must get ready to ride to Dover. The weather is fair and the Lady Anne may cross tomorrow. The party which left for Dover was very much larger than our small group had been. Following the Duke and Duchess were other noblemen and their wives, everyone's households and hundreds of servants. Catherine made sure that I rode just behind them with her ladies, which was kind of her. It was a cheerful day, with much singing and laughing as we covered the last few miles to Dover. I even overheard some of the men servants making crude jokes about the king's wedding night, although when I looked at them sternly, they blushed and stopped. We arrived in Dover at late afternoon. The town was buzzing with the news that Lady Anne had just landed and was resting at Deal Castle before coming into the centre. We rode to Dover Castle to make ready. It was a fort built to defend England's coast. But the Queen's apartments inside had all been refurbished. Glazed windows looked out over the sea and cheerful tapestries covered the stone walls. Everywhere there were fires blazing. Some of Anne's staff had come over to the castle to meet with the Duke to make arrangements for her ceremonial welcome. I stood by the fire warming myself and watching the comings and goings. I saw a group of men conferring with the Duke. It was dark in the hall and the smoke from the fire was swirling around, making it hard to see. To my delight, I realised that the one who had had his back to me was Will. His eyes widened with surprise when he saw me. He immediately left the group, came over and embraced me. Well met, Cat. What are you doing here? His cloak was still flecked with snow, but his arms were warm. The Duchess of Suffolk has asked me to attend the Lady Anne, I said, giving him another hug. But what of the children? It is Christmas tide. He would not condemn me, I knew, but he was curious as to my reason for leaving them. They're with Tom and Jane and very happy. Lady Catherine visited and promised them a trip to court next year. That so excited them that they were happy to see me go. So you're going to serve Lady Anne once she is queen? Will was justifiably puzzled. Here was his wife, who had been so angry with him at his renewed involvement, doing exactly what she had condemned. I patted him on the arm. It's only for two weeks, Will, just until she is settled at Greenwich. Lady Catherine wants to make everything as pleasant for her as possible. She's not used to men in her privy chamber, which is why Lady Catherine asked me. Will nodded thoughtfully. You always make life pleasant, my cat, he said. Just make sure you don't commit yourself more than you wish. I promised him on my life that I would not get in further than I could cope with. He smiled and kissed me. 
I cannot stay, Cat. We're discussing arrangements. But I hope to see you later. He used a hopeful, questioning tone, and I knew at once what he was thinking. I smiled back and curtsied. I am at your disposal, my husband, whenever you wish. It wasn't long before I saw him again, in the large train of people following the Lady Anne. I was standing behind the Duke and Duchess of Suffolk and their welcoming party. We were at the great gate of Dover Castle, shivering in the cold wind. Anne of Cleves processed towards us, flanked by officials from Cleves and London and her German ladies. The speeches were brief, given the weather. The Duke and Duchess of Suffolk approached Anne, each taking her by the hand and led her up inside. We all followed in a pell-mell of courtiers, servants and diplomats. I saw Will briefly and he mouthed, later, from across the room. I nodded and we shared a look of pure lust. But it didn't last long. I was beckoned by Lady Catherine's waiting woman to attend her in the royal chambers. I hurried there, hoping that I would not have forgotten how to perform in public. The room was bright with candles and the jewelled gowns of many women. In its centre stood a tall figure, lonely in spite of the bustle around her. Her heavy headdress had been removed and her blonde hair hung down to her waist. She was larger than the king's previous queens. Catherine, Anne and Jane had all been petite women. But she looked pleasant enough, with bright blue eyes and a generous mouth. She had been wearing the unwieldy garments fashionable in the court of Cleves, but now she was in her shift, and I could see she was well built, but not overly so. When I was introduced to her by her translator, I caught the scent of gillyflowers, a suitably fresh and girlish perfume. I was set to play, which I did while the ladies-in-waiting were preparing the Lady Anne for the grand welcome feast she was due to attend. First they washed her, using linen cloths and scent, rubbing down her skin. Then a clean shift and stockings. A plain kirtle covered by a heavy gown, encrusted with gems. Her hair combed and braided and then covered by a large shaped cap, again glittering with jewels. Soft leather shoes and a sparkling belt from whence a prayer book hung. Throughout she stood there, unmoved by the flurry around her. I wondered what she was thinking, but her face was impassive, unreadable. I started to play some of the Spanish songs I had learnt earlier, Suddenly, Anne's face lit up. She started to clap her hands in tune with the melody. All of the ladies joined in, some even tapping their feet. As I finished to a wave of polite applause, Anne strode towards me and exclaimed, Good! Das ist gut! As she kissed me on the cheek, the applause became much louder. 
It was an addictive reminder of the praise I had earned in the past. For a few moments, I felt truly alive, an artist as well as a woman. It was sweet beyond words. The Lady Anne, followed by her ladies, left the chamber for the hall. I would eat in the hall below her, along with the rest of the servants. There was a short period of bustle while everyone took their places. I was lower down the hall than Will, and the time seemed interminable while we ate many courses, salads, perch and salt cod, roast venison and swan, custards and dried fruits. The wine flowed and many in the hall drank too much. But I did not wish to sleep tonight, so I was sparing. I noticed that Will was too. As for the Lady Anne, she ate well, but barely touched her wine. Every now and then, she looked up from her plate, up and down the hall. Men and women mixing, loud conversations and laughter. I guessed it was very different from the decorous court she was used to. After the meal, us, us English showed again our relaxed ways. The tables had been pushed back and the court musicians were striking up for a dance. Most of the young courtiers eagerly took to the floor with friends and lovers. There was laughter, warm glances and some kisses. I noticed the Lady Anne was not dancing, but talking quietly with her German ladies. They observed us all with a puzzled good nature. But my attention left them when Will came up to claim me and I forgot my duties for a few hours. For us both, it was a joyous reunion. I was not required at night in Lady Anne's chamber and so we stole off to Will's pallet bed in the male dormitory. Everyone was still dancing and we were alone. How strange that we were married and yet we were creeping around like young lovers. But we felt so young on that night. All was going well and we delighted in each other. Much later, I stole back to the maid's dormitory, my heart spinning with happiness. The next morning, I was with the Lady Anne in her chamber. Her translator told us that she had found the night interesting. She started to ask her ladies to copy some of our styles and a French hood was found by Lady Catherine for her to wear. Immediately, she looked more approachable, less stiff. She was getting used to the English way of life. All that remained was to meet her intended husband, His Majesty King Henry VIII.